How dead is dead? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hear of the Story presented by the Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me is Josh Hayes. Josh, we have a very interesting question that we have posed at the beginning of this today, because we are looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We have zigged out of Acts once again. Right, because we zag when we're in Acts. That's right. We zag back in, and then we zig out. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. That's how this works. This is science, everybody. Um, <laughs> Both an art and a science, but it's precise like a science. The zigging oh, sure. and zagging. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, so Josh, we've got a lot to cover today, including the passage itself. So how about you do us a solid and you set up some context for what we are going to talk about today? Right. So since we're zigging back into an epistle, uh, let's recall that we we did get some context about the church in Ephesus, uh, since we're reading from the uh, letter to the Ephesians uh, today and looking at Ephesians chapter two. We we did learn some about uh, this church and how uh, Paul uh, did ministry in, in this area. We even uh, discussed it a couple of weeks ago uh, when we looked at Acts 19, and there we learned about these disciples of John the Baptist who needed to be informed about salvation in Christ and Christ as the Messiah and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We learned about the Sons of Sceva story, which really is a, a interesting uh, account that, that uh, leaves us with this great phrase of being uh, uh, people being described as naked and, and wounded, uh, you know, still, still, still recovering from that one. But uh, uh, we, uh, we, we read of that, that encounter uh, where people were attempting to cast out uh, demons and in, in Jesus name, but they actually didn't follow Jesus. So that didn't go so well for them. And then we also see how the party seemed to always follow Paul and that a riot uh, took place in Ephesus. So Paul had a, had a history uh, in this, this, this part of the, part of the world uh, that wasn't always pleasant, but nonetheless, uh, just because things aren't pleasant, doesn't mean it's not fertile ground for the gospel. A church did uh, endure there, did develop there. And so in this letter, we're seeing Paul's letter to the believers uh, in, in this area. And uh, it's believed by uh, most uh, conservative scholars that this would have been written around uh, AD 60 to 62. So when Paul would have been under arrest in Rome, which we can read about in, in Acts 28, this was uh, where he was writing uh, uh, the majority of his uh, what are called the prison epistles. So God gave him a lot of time. Mm-hmm. uh on his hands uh when he when he was writing these and so we benefit uh as the church collectively throughout the centuries as a result of this this providential circumstance in paul's life where he had time to write these letters and what's interesting about ephesians is, is that because of the the way that that we find some copies of the of, uh, in the manuscripts where the the heading is addressed to the ephesians sometimes it, it's blank uh, sometimes it looks like there might be an interchangeable uh, a, a recipient name or addressee there. And so this was likely a circular letter that went out to multiple churches. And that would explain things where Paul doesn't necessarily seem all that familiar or acquainted with the readers while well, he was trying to write a more generic epistle uh, without uh, dropping names and, uh, and, and acknowledging certain relationships because this was a letter he seems to have planned to be sent to different churches in, in this part of the world. 
in terms of situating ourselves within the, the context of the, uh, the letter to Ephesians itself is in chapter one, Paul describes the cosmic scope of our salvation in Christ, that God has these grander uh, purposes in Christ to put all things under his feet. And our salvation fits into that as we will, uh, we are united with this, this risen Christ whom will, uh, who reigns over the world and will reign over the world one day in a fuller sense. And we've been given the spirit as this, as this sort of down payment and assurance that we belong to him. Well, in chapter two, Paul transitions to discuss uh, the gracious, the gracious nature of this salvation that we we've received in Christ. And that's why we'll get into why it, the salvation is necessarily gracious and that we're dead in sins and trespasses to, and we'll address that question that was raised at the beginning of the episode that how, how dead are, how dead were we before Christ? But as Paul uh, moves forward in the, in the, in, in the letter and, and chapter two, he discusses the consequences of our union with Christ for unity between Jews and Gentiles and how we should relate to one another in the church. And then uh, he goes on in light of uh, his being a uh, an apostle to the Gentiles in view of God's plan of redemption to include the nations in his purposes uh, of bringing all things into in, into submission under the rule and reign of Christ. The, the latter half of the letter is more of a series of exhortations and instructions of what it means to live out our new status and identity in Christ and to, to live in unity with one another and, and to uh, pursue behavior and activity that, that's fitting of our new identity in Christ. And uh, we'll get, we'll unpack more about what it means to have this new status in Christ after we, after we read our passage, which I think you're, you're about to do for us. That's right. This passage actually holds a very special place in, in my heart because it is the first, uh, the first sermon I ever preached was from this passage. Oh, wow. Way back in July 2009, when I was still a pretty new Christian and had no business uh, (laughs) filling a pulpit, but but God was very kind and I committed no heresy that day. So (laughs) So that that task was accomplished at least, yeah. Absolutely. The bare minimum, bare minimum. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes that's what success looks like for us. I mean, we've all we've all probably been put in public speaking situations where we weren't uh, truly ready, but God was nonetheless merciful. Yeah. I, I will say, based on the feedback that I received, it was actually a pretty a pretty decent go. So the gospel was preached, people people heard it, and that was a good thing. So now, well, you were well protected by this passage because the gospel is just so. It's kind of hard to miss. It's a gimme, here, but, yeah. uh, but still. All right, so here is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. As the, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that the coming, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness 
to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made no effect uh, made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing and regulate and expressing regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace he did this so that he might reconcile both to god in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death that's a great passage. Yeah, that's that's a mouthful of, of gospel truths right there. Absolutely, I I am feeling fired up, Josh. So <laughs> uh, so here is so here's the big first question: What should we be asking about this passage as we read and study it? Uh, first question that might seem obvious to some is: What does it mean to be called dead in sins and trespasses? That's probably not a way you go around describing yourself or your neighbor. No, generally um, not. But generally, it is the question we started with. It, it is. And, and it's because we're trying to uh, do uh, due diligence with, did I just say do-do? I didn't mean to do that. But uh, <laughs> uh, we are trying to do our due diligence to Paul's own categories. Uh, and that is, is he is he describing, when he uses this language of dead and sins and trespasses, that we're dead men walking or are we the walking dead? So are we people who are on death row because of the crimes we've committed or are we uh, walking corpses like zombies that you see on a certain television show that might air on AMC? Uh, well, I would say the answer to that is both because some people want to choose between the two and say, well, no, it has more to do with legal categories, our condemnation that we're, 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 we're owed death because of our sin before God. But then mm -hmm. some would say, well, no, we're entirely incapable of any spiritual good because we're spiritually dead. We're incapable of doing any truly righteous or spiritual works. We have no spiritual life because we're so corrupted by sin. But I would say it's, it's both getting at the realities of condemnation in sin and also the corruption of sin and our personal being and all aspects of our being, being uh, corroded um, yeah. by sin, uh, though it doesn't mean we're as depraved as we possibly could be. It doesn't mean that we are pervasively affected by, by sin or radically infected by sin, if we could put it that way. And so mm -hmm. Paul is setting us up to see the need for God's supernatural intervening grace in order for us uh, to come alive and to walk uh, with and follow and follow Christ. We're capable of no spiritual good apart from God's grace. We're dead in our sins and trespasses uh, to use that, to use that metaphor. And that describes our, our general spiritual direction and, and disposition. We're, we're not saying that 
people are literal zombies in this in this in the in the physical sense that they're they're walking around they're yeah you know, they're 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 just mindlessly craving things uh sin does blind us to it to an extent but but people do make uh intelligent genuine choices it's just that these choices and des- and their their desires that that guide these choices are ultimately uh governed by their by their own uh, nature and and longings that are that have been corrupted uh, by sin, and there's there's no way to have those desires and longings changed apart from God's grace. So we need new uh, spiritual life. We need something to take new direction of our lives and of our wills in order for us to uh, in order for us to uh, pursue a healthier and life giving direction. Otherwise, we're just walking in darkness toward death or walking toward the cliff that is uh god's wrath towards sin as it as it were if we mm-hmm. remain in, in this state so that that sets us up well i think for the next question uh yeah. we, were, we were going to address and that's uh, who is this ruler of the power of the air described and I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh speak to that aaron yeah yeah so this is one of the many uh ways that Satan or the enemy or the devil is referred to in scripture. Um, and this is really important because this is, again, a reminder for us, just as we, we've we talked about at other times and in other places, um, we do not live in a purely materialistic world. Um, right. We live in a supernatural world. And so there that means that there are beings that exist that we cannot see that we cannot directly inter- that we do not necessarily directly interact with but do have an effect on us um, and so uh, what Paul is saying here is is that really that all of humanity's de facto allegiance because this is one of those places where um, there is a um, generally I'm not a fan of of simple binary decisions a or B. Um, this is one of those times where there actually is an A or B. Um, there is a this or that, um, which um, when it comes to when it comes to matters of faith in Christ, it is either a this or that. There's no neutrality. Um, here, what Paul is saying is is that um, that in terms of our allegiances, we are either, aligned aligned and in allegiance with God, meaning that we follow him, trust him, obey him, have faith in him, or um, our de facto allegiance is with Satan, with the principles and the principalities and powers, the 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 ruler of the of the power of the air, spiritual beings who preside over the nations. These are the kinds of this is the kind of language that the Bible uses to describe all of these things. Now the difference here is is that um, that allegiance is not um, either faith in faith in God our Creator versus faith in those beings. It's faith in God our Creator versus enmity and hostility toward Him. That's where the allegiance lies. Is those things are opposed to Him, and so it's basically an enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing. Um, and so they're conveniently using us to to strike at him where they're also seeking to destroy us as well because we are made in the image of God and they are not. 
So right, you think back even to the the, the Genesis two and three narrative, uh, where we're entrusted uh, with the care of creation by God back in Genesis one as His image bearers, and God gave us the authority to have have dominion over uh, all other living creatures and over the land, mm-hmm. and uh, yet we uh, sur- we surrendered that in a way. Uh, when we heeded the serpent's word over our creator's word and trusted the, the serpent uh, to be good to us instead of uh, the creator's good uh, word to live under his uh, love, loving, ru- loving rule. And so we, we uh, defied him, made, our, made it ourselves our own rulers in, in a sense, but then we also defected to the other side, to this, this enemy yeah. uh, that, that misled our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in, 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 the, in the garden. And that's just, that's been in the air we breathe. It's been in this toxic air we've breathed ever since the fall, ever since the first man and woman disobeyed God in the garden and brought sin into our world. And they were cast out of God's um, favorable presence in the, in, in the garden. You think of this term, um, this German term we use to describe sort of the the, the, the feeling and the, the, the mindset of, of a culture called zeitgeist spirit mm-hmm. of the age. Well, the spirit of the age is this, uh, my will be done instead of God's will be done. And so we are, uh, succumbing to satanic influence when we imbibe when we embody and pursue that, that sort of mindset. So that's really what Paul's getting at when he talks about the, the submitting and being uh, carried along by the ruler of the power of the air it's the the spirit of this age is the god of this age or the god of this world as paul describes him little g god in second corinthians 4 uh, that satan is the god of this age the ruler of this age and we we continue to uh, follow the 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 pattern set for us in, in the garden of heeding the serpent's word as opposed to god's word and submitting to his rule when we um by just by our default setting mm-hmm. as sinners who have inherited a sin nature uh, from um, the first humans going forward uh, and, and going about life in, in this way. So yeah. hopefully that that gives some sort of illustrative uh, enhancement to, to what, we're, what we're talking about here with the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the principalities and powers and the, the, the power of the air that we are, are ruled and governed by before life in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is, again, this is much like uh, many other topics that we have have hit in previous episodes or up or even some in some cases in upcoming ones um, that we will hit. Uh, this this really is a place where we have um, done ourselves a disservice in a couple of different ways. Either we've made too much of uh, of these things or we have or we have neglected um, pursuing a biblical understanding of them. And so we neglect because of the overreach uh, um, in some circles, really, because there are uh, because there is a tendency to essentially equate power between um, between God the Creator and Satan. Um, you know, even the lang because partly because the language that the Bible use uses is in its translation is accurate, but it doesn't. But our understanding of it is deficient. So when it call when it when Satan is called the god of this world, it's not equating him with God the Creator because he can't be equated with God the Creator because only God the Creator is 
um, eternally existent. Right. Satan is a created being. Exactly. And so, has, so while greatly powerful, is finite in his power. Um, and we see in Scripture that he's actually restrained by God um, and in multiple instances. He can only go so far as, um, as, the, as his leash will let him go, essentially. And he can't get off of that leash. And one right. day, he will, that leash and him with it will get thrown into a lake of fire and it will be delightful for the universe. Yeah, I, th- I believe Luther said something um, in the essence of this is something like that, that Satan is Satan, but, or, or uh, the devil is the devil, but he's still the God, he's still God's devil. So God has him on a leash to employ that, that metaphor that, that you, that you uh, brought up that I think Luther even talked, describes uh, the devil as uh, God's Doberman, that God has his own purposes. I mean, you, you see this in passages like in first um, Corinthians five, where Paul's talking about the context of church discipline. If someone goes on and unrepentant ongoing sin to deliver such a one over to Satan. So Satan, fits within God's economy, just like the other evil spirits do, that this is a form of, of judgment that God's uh, turned over creatures who have rebelled against him to themselves. So he lets the evil spirits, the, what we might call demons, what the old Testament some to, sometimes refers to as the gods of the nations. Um, it turns those loose to do their own destruct destruction and then turns humans loose to, to worship them according to their own folly and, and, and destruction. So that, that fits into the, and God's plans and purposes for judging sin and sin sort of having its own uh, built-in consequences of, of destruction. So uh, before we go off too for uh, too much further off into a rabbit trail, let's, uh, let's <laughs> right. get back to Ephesians here. So in verse four, Paul is doing something very interesting. He says here, uh, but God who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, continuing in verse five, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. And so something that he's doing here is, is that he seems to be grounding God's grace in God's love for us. So Mm -hmm. why is he doing that? Um, And, and I think that this is really important because we need to understand that God wasn't gracious to us so that he could love us, but rather he demonstrated his love for us by showing us grace. The, this, is, this is ultimately the rationale for salvation by grace through faith. It's not, it's not love based on our merit. It's love based on God's goodness right. and God's kindness. Um, you know, so it reminds us that we have nothing to boast about other than God's grace flowing from his from his love for people like us, people who apart from him are meritless sinners. Um, right. So whenever we ask questions like so, there's a really good question that people I think should be asking themselves. And I hear it asked is, is why did God why did Jesus die for us? Why did Jesus come live a perfect life, die and subject himself to all of that. He and of course the right answer is is that he did it because he loves us. But right. the follow-up question, the deeper question is, well why? Why does he love us? And the answer is simply and mind-blowingly, he loves us because he loves us. Yeah. He yeah. loves us because he's good. 
That's why. Yeah, it's in God's nature to love his people. And as we've quoted uh, the biblical theologian and scholar, your hottest boss, Mm. uh, paraphrase him, you know, how can we be assured that God will always love us? Well, because he never started. Now that's, that's my trans, that's the Josh Hayes translation of, of Voss, but our confidence in God's love lies in the fact that it never began. I think that's closer to what Voss actually said, but that's such a, such a, uh, fundamental and mind-blowing heartwarming uh thought that god's grace is driven and motivated by his love and his love his love is is his grace providing what his righteousness requires and, and giving us exactly uh, what we desperately need as sinners if we're going to be right before him another question that we've got here that we've got to address um is there's this language in verses five and six that uh, that Paul uses. He says that that um, we're made alive with Christ. Uh, what does that tell us about the Christ-centered nature of our salvation? Right. It, it, it's tied to, together with Paul's common usage of the phrase "in Christ." We're in Christ. We're in Jesus. We're in Christ Jesus, or even Christ Jesus is in us. Mm-hmm. And it's this this unwielding and permanent union between the believer and the risen uh, and ascended Jesus. And that's the ground of all aspects of our, our, our salvation. Oftentimes, you know, we can find ourselves either emphasizing uh, our justification in Christ, that we've been declared righteous and forgiven in him, or our sanctification in Christ, that we've been given, we've been given the power to live a holy life in Christ, or as we talked about in a recent episode, our glorification in Christ, or maybe somebody wants to emphasize our adoption in Christ or our election in Christ, those, those sort of things. Well, at the center of all that is that it's in Christ. So even when we're talking about our own salvation, we should be Christ-centered because the Bible is Christ-centered mm-hmm. in how it describes salvation, just as Paul is here. And so in chapter one, Paul writes that we were chosen in Christ and predestined in him for adoption in Christ. And so you have election, you have adoption in Christ talked about in chapter one of Ephesians, that all things are going to be under Christ. And then in chapter two here, we have our conversion, our status before God changing because of our being united by faith, right? Paul's very clear uh, and overt, goes out of his way to mention, we are saved by grace. And then later on says grace through faith in Christ, uh, by which we're saved. And we are already in a sense, spiritually with him in the heavenly places in the heavens, as as Paul, as Paul puts it, we're with Christ. So we are saved, not just because of what God did on the cross for us and sending Jesus to die for us, but because we are with him eternally and permanently in this, in this union with, with him, uh, that takes place, uh, once we, once we come to faith in him. And so really the rest of Ephesians is just saying this, this permanent secure status and identity that you have in Christ, live that out accordingly. You, the, the, your union and identity in Christ is the most fundamentally important thing uh, about you. And that's what it means to have salvation in Christ is to be made alive together with Christ. As Paul puts it here that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. That's where our inheritance is. That's where our home is. It's with mm-hmm. God in heaven, with Christ. It's secure in him. That sounds like a pretty, pretty wonderful gift, doesn't it? And, 
and that actually leads into the next thing that we need to talk about, which is how we should understand the gift that's referenced in verses eight and nine, um, because there there can be some confusion about about this because is, uh, you know, there is this question of you know is Paul referring to salvation as a whole as a gift? Is he talking about, or is he specifically narrowing it down to faith is a gift? Um, and really, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the answer is both because all of salvation is a gift, and that includes faith. Um, we see this in you know Philippians one twenty nine. For it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also suffer for Him. So you see that 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 the that here is is that it's been the ability to believe was granted there. You, you are given that. Um, and John 6, 29 says, uh, this is, and this is Jesus being quoted here, that this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent, uh, that you believe in the one that he has sent. And so um, that there's something that God does that, that creates, that, that, that brings everything together, that our faith is that faith itself is a gift in the context of salvation being a gift that doesn't remove the active the active human reality of it. Um, it just adds a complexity to it, and and right. honestly should give us something even more to marvel at. Yeah, yeah. Faith is a supernatural work done by God in us. Now it's not God believing for us. It's not God making us robotically surrender to his will or as if, as, as if we don't uh, participate or have any agency in that, but it is God enabling us to uh, receive his promises to us in Christ. It's, it, it's a, it, it's his enabling our to get over ourselves to get out of the way and to stop relying on ourselves and looking to other things for salvation and identity and instead looking to Christ. And we, we want, we want faith to be a supernatural work that God does in us by the spirit, rather than something we have to conjure up ourselves. And that that's a great grounds of assurance that the one who began a good work in us, it seems like I'm quoting Philippians one, six, almost every podcast, but it, it, it seems to just, it seems to be always it's relevant. really important. It, it, it's relevant in principle that, that God who begins a work will finish it. So we want to rest our faith, our confidence in our faith, not because our faith is so strong in itself because, you know, because it belongs to us because of our personality, because of our, of our religious or intellectual rigor, our, our piety, but no, our confidence and our faith to last and endure is in God's faithfulness itself that he who began a good work in us will complete it mm-hmm. in the day of Christ, in the day of Christ Jesus. All right. So uh, next thing, Josh, and let's handle this uh, as delicately yet quickly as we can, um, which is uh, why is it good news that God tore down the division between Jews and Gentiles through Christ? That should, well, that, that question itself lens leans leans into the answer a little bit because the fact that the division has been torn down itself is good news right uh but let's let's uh give us the big idea there well this is relevant in the context of ephesians and that paul's talking about the cosmic scope how what god has achieved in christ has ramifications, implications, effects for all of creation. And, and it even it's more fitting that Ephesians being a letter that was likely passed around, circulated to different churches, that it would have this uh, common 
uh, relevancy to Jew Gentile relations, you know, since it would be going to multiple kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is getting at how God's reconciling work not only entails his reconciling himself to us and us to him by taking away uh, the enmity between us through the death on the cross, but that actually because of Jesus fulfilling God's purposes and his death on the cross has brought to pass this era of history in which humanity has been divided uh, roughly between uh, and broadly uh, among uh, Jew and Gentiles. It's because God has specific purposes to work out the salvation and the blessing of all nations through the people known as the Israelites or the or the Jews. And so this period has come to an end because Messiah has come. He's the true seed of Abraham who will bring this blessing promised to Abraham to all the nations. So this reconciliation between God and humanity also has a, a horizontal element to it and horizontal capacity and that it reconciles hum humans with one another no longer do we need to be divided up into Jew and Gentile because in this new man, this, this new and better Adam, if we could call Jesus that we've all been united in him. So everyone who belongs to Jesus stands in the kingdom equally. We, we are equal co-heirs with Christ. There is no more need to divide according to Jew and Gentile background or ethnicity, we can all live peacefully among one another because we have peace with God. We have peace with one another through what Christ has done. It's not that the law was bad to have these divisions between God's covenant people where he primarily worked through the ethnic group known as Israel, uh, apart from the, the broader nations, what are called the, the Gentiles. I'm not saying that, that was bad, but that, that was temporary but also those divisions were exacerbated by human sin. So there, there, there were bad elements that got attached to that, that division and how people saw themselves just by, by human, human nature. So that period in which that was enabled and exacerbated, that, that's now over. And that's good news because we, are, we have now been reconciled under this one new man to live peacefully. And in Christ, we can live out that reality. So we should pursue this peace among one another. And that's, that's really what... Ephesians is working out in chapters four, five, and six in our, our relationships with with one another. All right, so Josh, that is that that is a really helpful explanation of that point. Now let's um, let's wrap up this conversation by addressing a couple of points um, to help our listeners as they work through this passage with someone else. So uh, there's a couple of things here that I want to say, and then I'm going to give you the last one, which really ties in well with what you've already which with what you've already talked about here but uh there's a there's a a two-sided piece here that uh that we need to remember from this passage which is first that we need to take sin seriously so uh this passage really challenges us to look at sin the way that i think god wants us to um largely through that word dead and right. that's that word that that we that that's that question that we kicked off this episode with, and this verse this passage itself has been subject to a lot of contentious argumentation, and we're not going to get into any of that. We've tried to avoid that as much as we could throughout this. Um, so, listeners, if you're inclined to hearing something that we're not saying, please don't. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, just remember that this word dead is a really big word. It's got a lot of power 
that gets that that's being thrown behind it. And Paul is using that very intentionally to communicate the seriousness of sin. Sin is not something to toy with. It's not something to trifle with. It's not something to minimize. Sin is a killer. And so we have to recognize that in our own lives, first and foremost, that, that if we were, if in, if because of sin, we were dead and in Christ, we are alive, then why would we want to go running after things that kill us? Mm -hmm. Why would someone want to drink poison, for example? Um, and so that also speaks into this is that second part that just like we have to take sin seriously both for our for our personal point of view uh, for our, for our personal lives and our and our walk with Christ we also have to take the spiritual state of non Christians seriously and realistically uh, when we're thinking about how to reach them with the gospel so we have to so in other words because. Paul is directing this letter at Christians, and he's saying, you were dead in trespasses and sin. Yep. That inspire that needs to necessarily create a sense of humility within us. That's, that's part of what's intended here. We should not be arrogant and puffed up by saying, oh, well, we found the truth at all. And if we're doing that, that means that we've probably, we may have missed it. Um, or at least we need to have a real good hard look at ourselves. But because we were once walking in our sins and trespasses, dead uh, dead people walking in, and and you know as the walking dead, as you uh, you you put it earlier, uh, we would continue to do so were it not for God and His and the and in His mercy showing us great love and grace because of his love for us. So if so in that we need to approach people with kindness, with clarity, but with a, a convictional kind of kindness that mm -hmm. we don't minimize, we don't downplay sin sinful actions and behaviors. Uh, but when it comes to non-Christians, we show as much compassion and humility and love by as we pursue them with the gospel. Yeah. You think of that phrase that we you, you often hear, especially in the in the South, but by the grace of God, there go I. Right. It's a it's a statement of humility saying that, you know, if I was in the same circumstances as another person, I might be guilty of the same sins uh so, so i want to uh, approach uh, a matter sens sensitively and uh and and humbly and that has a lot of merit to it people can use it in a trite a cliche way but really what paul's saying here is not only but by the grace of god there go i it's but by the grace of god there i was and also so they are so let's be mindful of that as we engage with with non-christians and as we're thinking about um our relationship with with those who are uh, separated from God or in hostility uh, with God or, or or others. That's that's where this 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 letter of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter two specifically uh, speaks to to address a, another uh, a takeaway, and that's that we need to embody a reconciling mindset in all our relationships with others. As I've said, what Paul has set up here in chapters one and two, and then in three 
really gives the the sort of the theological basis for the uh, practical uh, exhortation that he gives in chapters four, five, and six. And so, just as we saw, as we discussed a few weeks ago on the episode about uh, Christ's reconciliation, that there's this logic that in Second Corinthians five that because we've been reconciled to God, we implore others to be reconciled to Him. Well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, because we've been reconciled in this horizontal sense, we've been reconciled vertically with God, but now horizontally with one another, the Jew and Gentile divisions have been taken down and there really is no legitimate uh, barriers between different kinds of humanity. As far as God's concerned, we're all, we're all uh, to be reconciled to him uh, through Christ, this new Adam, that, that the church really is to be this, this incubator of a new kind of humanity, humanity restored to how we were meant to live in, in unity together. So we're, we're not only proclaiming to people to be reconciled to God as we've been reconciled to God, but be reconciled to one another as, as we have been reconciled to one another in Christ. So join the party that is the church that is this supposed to be at least this, this great bastion of of unity, unity and, and oneness uh, under truth, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not just unity, just for the sake of unity, but it's unity in the, in the truth of who Christ is, who, who God is and what his purposes for the world are. But what this means, if we've been reconciled to one another as one covenant people in God, Jew and Gentile, and you either fall in those two categories, that includes all kinds of humanity, Jew, Gentile, everybody mm-hmm. falls in one of those two, but that barrier is to be torn down and we should live out what it means to be reconciled with one another, regardless of whatever racial background we might have whatever ethnic group we might belong to or whatever socio socioeconomic class we might be, belong to. We're to be this as the church in Christ, one humanity um, who lives out our identity in this one new man, as Paul puts it, the new Adam who, who is Jesus. So mm-hmm. the gospel really is the basis for us to be peacemakers, to pursue peace in all our relationships. And that includes these, various categories related to race ethnicity and social social status and whatever whatever other identities that we might be prone to elevate above our what should be our primary identity as image bearers and as those who uh, follow follow jesus so the gospel is the is the grounds for all peace and reconciliation in terms of our relationships with others we could put a put a bow on it Yeah, absolutely. And man, that is a great note for us to end on. So Josh, thanks for discussing Ephesians 2 with me. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 